Well, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that stuff. You made it through so far, anyway. Um, a lot of times this time of the year can be uh, tumultuous at best for a lot of different folks, not just with calendars and time and all that stuff, but also um, stress <laughs> seems to creep into our lives this time of year. Um, and that's one thing I want to talk to us a little bit about this morning in Psalm chapter, uh, the Psalm 31 actually is what we want to be looking at this morning. And I just want to read for us Psalm 31 uh, verses 14 and 15, which will be kind of the center point of our text this morning. Psalm 31 uh, beginning verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. One thing that we know in the world in which we live today is that uh, the reality um, is that we live in a very fast-paced society. We live in a society that wants everything yesterday. Whether it's fast food or your internet connection or whatever it might be. I was just uh, doing some work last night on the iPad in my bedroom. And I'm thinking, why is this thing so slow? And yet I stopped and I thought, you know, if I would have compared this to the computers that we had and the gadgets we had 10 years ago, there would be no, you know, it would be like lightning speed. But we just get this in our heads that we have to have everything right now. Um. And we constantly hear about people being stressed in our society. People that are just inundated with all these these deadlines and and goals and agendas that they have. And uh, they're either stressed out or they're going through burnout or something like that. You hear this all the time. There's a a stress test that you can take and uh, it gives points. It awards points for various uh, traumatic situations that you might find yourself in. Um, For example, um, the death of a spouse rates 100 points, which is probably one of the most stressful things you'll ever go through, to lose your loved one, a spouse, the one that you've been married to and spent your life with. Very stressful. Um, They rate the Christmas season as 12 points. If you took a vacation at Christmas... You not only got the 12 points for Christmas, but throw in an extra 13 points just because vacations can be stressful. Uh, I I read an article in Reader's Digest. I remember reading this years ago. It was about a a woman who was just your classic uh, type A personality. You know, just driven, 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 always doing everything fast, has to get everything done, and always self-imposed stress. Uh, Not all stress is bad, by the way. There's some stress that's good. But her friend was determined to kind of break her out of this and get her time to relax. She was just always just stressed. And so her friend invited her over for dinner. And um, while she was busy fixing dinner, she said, you know, hey, I bought a video for you. And uh, it's it's not that long. But I I want you to sit down and watch this video because I, I think it'll really help you in this area of stress. And so 
She went in the kitchen, was fixing dinner, and the lady went in the living room, turned the video on. Fifteen minutes later, the lady comes into the kitchen. And she said, yeah, I'm done. It didn't help me. And the lady cooking dinner said, that's impossible. You couldn't have watched that video. It was 70 minutes long. Oh, I did it on fast forward. But I got the gist of it. That's not for me. You know, some of us are that way. We just want everything done. You know, whether it's we drove to Monterey the other day and we were in traffic and I'm just thinking, oh, man, you know, and it starts building. And I had to kind of remember, OK, wait, what have you been studying this week? What have you been preparing to share on Sunday? You just need to chill out a little bit. Um, and you may wonder, back in biblical times, thousands of years ago, did these people ever deal with stress? Did they ever deal with stress that sometimes our modern world faces. Um, well, David went through stress. He probably went through stress like none of us have ever experienced. I doubt if anybody in this room today, he, he's the one that wrote Psalm 31, most of us have probably never been under the stress of literally having someone determined to kill you. And you're constantly fleeing from them. I mean, that would be kind of a nightmare, wouldn't it? Always looking over your shoulder. But David went through just that thing. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 31. He says in verse 3, You are my rock, my fortress. For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. And then he says, You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. Who's they? The enemy. The ones who are trying to kill him. Down in verse 13, he says, For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Do you ever go into a room and people are over in the corner and, they're, and you walk in? Hey, what's up? And they stop talking. What do you think? Oh, what are they saying about me, right? I mean, that's just the, the natural inclination. They're talking about me behind my back. Well, David had that going on all the time, and they weren't just talking about him. They were talking about how to kill him. That would be a little stressful. You might find that a little hard to to sleep at night if that kind of stress was in your life. Verse 11 says, They even slandered him, because all my my adversaries have become a reproach, especially to my uh, a reproach especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the streets flee from me. So apparently they turned all his friends and neighbors against him. Furthermore, I think David could see the connection, <laughs> this is interesting, between his current troubles We've probably all been in this situation before, and his own sin. Have you ever found yourself in a situation and you're going, okay, you're looking around, there's nobody to blame but yourself. And you know you did wrong, you know you sinned before the Lord, and you're bearing out the consequences of your sin. When verse 10, he says, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing, my strength fails because of what? What's he say? Of my iniquity. He recognized his own sin was causing some of this stress, some of this affliction in his life. And he had to wrestle with that, that guilt 
on top of everything else. Reminded of, of a story of a brother and sister. Call them Johnny and Mary. Johnny got this new slingshot for his birthday. And he was in the backyard and he was shooting little pebbles at bottles and things and just couldn't hit anything. Nothing. Everything he aimed at, he missed. So they had to go inside for dinner and they're walking inside and he said, ah, give it one more shot. And he saw his grandmother's little bunny there on the porch. And he thought, I'm no, I'm not going to hit it. Sure enough, he pulled the slingshot back, took aim, hit the thing right in the head and killed it, dead. He went inside and thought, man, what am I going to do? This is grandmother's bunny. I am in big trouble. Don't know what to do. They sat down at dinner. Dinner started and Sister Mary was sitting next to him. And the mother said, Johnny, can you get up and get every, or Mary, can you get up and get everybody glasses of water for the dinner? And she said, oh, mommy, Johnny would like to do that. She leaned over to Johnny and she says, remember the rabbit. (laughs) Johnny thought, oh no, she saw me kill grandma's rabbit. So she went. He went into the kitchen and reluctantly got the glasses and sat down. And and you can see where this is going. At the end of dinner, Mother asked Mary to help with the dishes. Oh, Mother, Johnny said he would love to help you with the dishes. She looked at Johnny, said, remember the rabbit. Well, this went on for a week or so. Finally, poor Johnny was so riddled with guilt over what he had done. He went into his grandmother's room, she lived in the back, and said, I'm so sorry, I killed your rabbit. That's how it died. I couldn't bear to tell you, shot it with the slingshot. You know, she said, she said, I know, I saw the whole thing. But I loved you so much, I already forgave you. I just wondered how long you were going to allow this guilt of what you did to keep that under your, your sister's thumb. You held out for a week and a half. That was pretty good. But doesn't it feel good just to confess it? That's what guilt does. Guilt puts us under the thumb. And see, one thing David understood was that he had to wrestle with his guilt on top of everything else. And maybe you've done some things wrong in your life. Maybe you've sinned in a myriad of ways. We all have. But don't allow that guilt to control you. Guilt is not necessarily bad. When you do something wrong, you should feel guilty. The problem with our society today is when people feel guilty over something, they say, well, lay down on the couch and we'll talk about your guilt. I remember one one, uh, uh, psychologist, biblical psychologist, had the person lay down and the guy goes, well, you know what? I just am feeling so guilty. I just, you know, I don't know what to do. I just have this guilt, this continuous guilt. And the, the, the psychologist finally said, well, you know what? It's because you're guilty. <laughs> and he went on to explain the gospel to him. See, our modern society doesn't understand that. 
Guilt is a bad thing. Um, but we, we do know that it was written, this, this psalm, when David was in a pressure cooker. He was under a lot of stress. And he tells us how to deal with stress. And, you know, with this new year coming up, you don't know what you're going to face. You really don't. Whatever stresses you face now, or even in 2014, David, I want you to understand, had at least equal or greater ones. And so this psalm isn't being written by somebody up in some ivory tower somewhere that doesn't understand what you're going through. No, it's written by somebody who's had his life threatened and lived in a very stressful situation for a period of time. And in verses 14 to 15, David gives us really a key on handling stress in our lives. He says, but as for me... I trust in you, O Lord, and I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. To personalize that statement, I put it there in your outline. My response to stress should be trust in the sovereign, personal God. The God who created you. The God who loves you. Notice the first thing here in verse 15. He says, my times are in your hand. My times, that, that kind of shows us the reality of stress. Both David's times and our times are marked by instability. If you don't believe me, just ask somebody that's in the financial market. They'll say, yeah, you don't know what's going to happen. Talk to somebody in real estate. Yeah, it's good now, but it could change like that. You don't know. The word times there is, notice it's plural. It's not my time is in your hand. No, my times. What's he speaking of here? John Calvin commented on this. He says, he does not use the plural number times without reason, but rather to mark the variety of casualties by which the life of man is usually harassed. In other words, what he's saying is, you know what? When you live your life, you're going to be faced with, with adversaries and different things that are going to cause str- stress in your life multiple times over. I mean, it'd be nice if you became a Christian and you had to go through one little stress test and that was it, right? Wow, you know, faced it, got it over with, and the rest is just pure bliss. That's not what the Christian life is. The word causes us to reflect upon the instability and the changeableness of life. Life is always changing. We were just talking the other night. My wife was getting my clothes ready. She was asking about a certain waist size. And that carried over into the living room. And we're sitting there. She said, well, you used to wear a 32 and a 34. Well, things change. Times change, you know. Bodies change. I mean, I figure, you know, when I was 20, I was a size 32. Now I'm 35, 36. That's not too bad. Not that it always could use improvement, it could, but I'm just saying. See, we may think that we control our times, but you know what? We really don't. I mean, stop and think about even the King David. One day, David was this powerful king. Powerful king, ruler. The next segment, he's running for his life from his own rebellious son, See, you never know what stresses you're going to face in 2014. Now, some of them are predictable, aren't they? 
Sometimes we know there's, there's stressful times coming. Predictable changes. Maybe that relate to the, the way we age or changes in the life cycle, things like that. Some of you may be graduating high school or college this next year. That's a change. But you know it's coming. Still stressful, but you know it's coming. Maybe some of you will be starting a new career. Stressful, but you, you, know, you know it's coming. You know you'll be doing it. Others will be entering married life, maybe for the first time this next year. A little stressful. Others will be having their first child. Maybe your, 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 one of your children will be entering school for the first time. All those things are predictable. Some of you may be facing retirement. That could be stressful. But they're all predictable. They just need some adjustments in our life. But there's other changes that happen in our life, beloved, that are quite unpredictable, that are unannounced, that just come out of nowhere. They barge into our lives like an intruder in the night, and they surprise us. They catch us off guard. Could be the sudden loss of a family member. Maybe the loss of health. Maybe an aging parent will require large segments of your time and your energy to care for them. Some will lose their jobs. In our society, you lose your job, you lose part of your identity. That's just the way it is. That change in life can put a tremendous amount of stress, not only on the individual, but on the family. We see it in our society today. I read this statistic. 85% of men who are unemployed for nine months or more end up divorcing their spouse. It's kind of weird. It goes right to the heart of the issue, though. Some may find themselves in a situation in their marriage that's hard to deal with, that you never planned on. See, whether it's predictable or unpredictable, I'm just here to tell you the new year holds things that will produce stress in our lives. And I want to make three brief observations about this psalm dealing with stress. And the first one, there A, the time to prepare for stress is before it hits. Don't wait till you're in a stressful situation and then run around trying to figure out what to do. It's obvious from Psalm 31 that David knew God in a very personal way. He knew him in a, a practical, thorough way before he got into any crisis that prompted this psalm. The reason I know that is because just look at what he writes in the psalm. Look at verse 1, verse 19, verse 20. He talks about the attributes of God. God is a refuge. He's a shelter. He says he's righteous in verse 1. He says in verse 23 that he will judge righteously. In verse 2 and 3, he calls him a rock of strength. In verses 2 and verse 22, he says, you know what? My God hears and answers prayer. In verse 2 and 3, he says he's a stronghold. He's a fortress. In verse 4, he says that he's David's source of strength. Verse 5, that he's a God of truth. 
7, 16, 21, that He's a God of loving kindness. Verse 7, that He's all-knowing. Verse 9, that He's gracious. And that He forgives. He doesn't cast off the rejected. He even has unlimited storehouses of goodness for those who fear Him in verse 19. Even if you're going through the worst trial, this is the God who will care for you. Now, trust me, David didn't learn all that about God in the midst of this present trial that he's going through. He didn't learn about it in this calamity that he finds himself in. I believe it deepened his knowledge of God. It always does when we go through trials, when we go through distress, when we deal with stress. It it should deepen our knowledge of God. But David had begun to... Know God through His Word. All you have to do is read Psalm 19. As a boy tending his father's sheep, became very familiar with the Lord. Even then, God knew David as a man after his own heart. So when crisis hit David's life, what happened? David had the resources stocked up in God to lean upon. He didn't have to question his God. He didn't have to question his faith. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, says that exact same thing. Basically, the the whole point there is the time to get wisdom is before calamity strikes. You don't want to wait till the calamity hits you. And that's the point, that that the, the first point here is that the time to prepare for stress is before it hits. I was talking to Crystal the other day, and I said, it seems weird the older I get, the more I carp, uh, carp, carpent, uh, what's the, uh, no, compartmentalize, thank you, compartmentalize my time. In other words, I think, okay, like before the kids got here, okay, I just got to get them from the airport and get them home, <laughs> you know, and then, okay, one week, two weeks, three weeks. And you're just doing that. The other day, we're driving down to Monterey. Okay, we just got to get there. And then we'll get home. And then what if this happens? Well, if it happens, it happens. But we just got to get to the next step. Do that with holidays. Okay, we just got to get through Christmas. Then we just got to get through New Year's. Okay, after New Year, wow, okay, got a little break. Boy, going to India, Thailand, got to get through that. Then we got VBS. Then we, that's how I think. And it helps me deal with a lot that's going on. And it's not a bad thing. But sometimes it's good to deal with stress before you're actually in a stressful situation. People who are experts in security and things like that, they always tell you, don't wait until you're getting robbed or getting held up at gunpoint or in, a, in carjacking to figure out what you're going to do. Think about it ahead of time. If that happened right now, what would I do? And... I often have thought about that. And so that's the point here. And David makes that point. He spends time alone with God. He spends time alone in his word. Feeds his soul. Gets himself ready. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to let the word of God confront our lives where where the sin is. Where it needs to be dealt with. And then we'll be ready when it comes to crunch time. 
If you're already in a, in a crisis and you don't know God as David did, then you need to seek him like you never saw him before, beloved. Because he's gracious and he'll meet you there. He'll help you out. But the time to prepare for stress is before it hits. Secondly, even if our stress is the consequences of our sin, look at we can still take refuge in God. So many times I run into believers that find themselves in the depths of sin, and rather than run to the church, run to Christ, they run the other way. That doesn't make any sense. If there's one place you should be in when you're dealing with sin is in church, around God's people, where you can get accountability, where you can talk about it, where you can get it out in the open, where you can be transparent. That's a problem with a lot of our churches today. There's no transparency. Everybody comes into church with a pasty little smile. How you, oh, praise the Lord, everything's fine. Everything's just good. They know their whole family was in disarray 30 minutes ago and they were getting ready for church and everything was crazy and they're yelling and screaming and they're fighting and they're coming to the parking lot and then they walk in, oh, everything's fine. We need some transparency in church. You know, it's okay to say, you know what, I've had a rough morning. Things are not going well this morning. Could you pray for me? I mean, you don't need to live it out in all the the grisly details for everybody to hear. But let's be honest with ourselves and honest with others. And here, David is just that, because sometimes our stress is a consequence of sin. David recognized that in his part in verse 10. His own sin was behind the crisis he was in. Maybe... This psalm was written in connection with Absalom's rebellion. Not sure. That rebellion was a consequence of what? David's sin with Bathsheba. The good thing is that, you know what? We serve a God, beloved, who will forgive our sin if we confess and forsake it. Proverbs 28, 13 tells tells us that. But he doesn't say that he's going to just remove all the consequences of sin. See, that's sometimes what we, we fail to understand, isn't it, about sin. We go, we sin, and then we feel bad about it, so we go to God and say, oh, sorry, you know, thank you for your forgiveness. But the consequences to our sin are still there. See, he doesn't necessarily remove the consequences all the time. Sometimes he allows them to be there as a reminder But David's experience here shows us that even in the calamity that is a direct result of our sin, we can still and should run to God for refuge and for comfort. And we should know that he will receive us. That's the kind of God we serve. It's significant that David's enemies were still condemning him long after God had forgiven him. They didn't stop condemning him just because God forgave him. They were talking against him making his name a reproach. Some of the words he uses, verse 1 of, of, of 31 there, he says, ashamed. Verse 11, reproach. Verse 13, slander. Thir- 17, put to shame. Strife of tongues in verse 20. No doubt they were looking at David saying, what a hypocrite. Look at this guy. He claims to follow God. Yeah, God, man after God's own heart. Yeah, right. But he was guilty of murder and adultery. Go figure. See, they weren't making these charges up. They were true. They were true about David. 
But see, David didn't really, his enemies did not understand the sincerity of David's repentance, nor the magnitude of God's grace. And we have to be very careful as believers sometimes because sometimes we see people get themselves in a, a situation because of their sin. And what do we do? We immediately go to the judgment phase, right? Well, if they wouldn't be doing that, then they wouldn't be in that situation. Too bad. They get what they deserve. Aren't you glad you don't get what you deserve? I know I am. Because the Bible says we all deserve hell. Because of our sin. And yet because of his grace, he saves us. We must never condone sin, but we also must be careful not to judge or react or reject repentant sinners. Third thing here, God will never allow us to go through more stress than we can bear if we trust him. 1 Corinthians 10.13, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able. See, God's not this mean old man that sits up in heaven trying to make you do bad stuff. And then when you do the bad stuff, he clobbers you over the head with a, a frying pan or something. I mean, that's not the kind of God we serve. I mean, David's trial was definitely a terrifying trial. Someone was after him to kill him. And it says that he despaired even for his life. But God gave him strength to endure. But it's also interesting that God isn't into easy solutions. He doesn't usually remove the trial the instant we seek him, does he? Have you ever been in a situation and you pray, God, please help me out of this. I don't know how I got myself into this, but man, I just I can't deal with this. Sometimes it's years before God allows you out of a situation that you've created. He doesn't just snap his fingers and, whoa, all the trial's gone, all the consequences are gone. Boy, I'm just happy, happy in Jesus. No, it doesn't work that way. He always gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. That's just the God we serve. It's only when we trust God in the midst of these severe, distressful times that we prove his faithfulness in our own experience. Often it's, it's the waiting for God to deliver us that's the most difficult thing. I mean, think about Joseph in the Old Testament. He's languishing for better part of his 20s. Some of you are in your 20s. He's in an Egyptian dungeon. His feet are in irons, never seeing the daylight. Well, why was he there? Oh, because he obeyed the law, the Lord, by resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife. You think, well, that doesn't seem fair. Why didn't God answer his prayers? I mean, we know the outcome, don't we? But for years, Joseph didn't know that one day he would be released. He didn't understand that. He didn't know that one day he'd be released and he'd be promoted to the second in the land. He didn't know that at the time. But because Joseph trusted in God that whole time, he could later say to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, you know what, what you meant as evil against me God somehow meant it for good. See, we never know how God's hand is involved in the trials we go through. I guarantee you, every one of us somehow will be involved in some stressful situation this coming year. 
But if we prepare in advance by sinking our roots down deep into God and in his word, if we take refuge in him, even if the stress is a result of our own sin, and if we remember that God will not allow us to go through more stress than we can handle, we'll grow stronger as a result of it. But there's a second factor here. He says his time is in God's hands. And this points out not just the reality of stress, but it also points out the reality of a sovereign, personal God. Uh, That word times there, David's times, they may have been unstable. They may have been changing. But I want you to understand this morning that David's God was stable. He was unchanging. And and that's the the key. Your times may be unstable. Your times may be changing day to day. You don't know what's going to happen. But our God isn't that way. He refers to him in verse 2 and 3 as a rock, as a fortress. We were over in Half Moon Bay the other day, and the kids ran up this, out on the point there, they ran up this one hillside. And it's just real sandy, kind of loose soil. And they're scooting up there, you know, and it's, it was interesting to watch them go up and down. But I could tell one of the kids was a little unstable coming down. And when she finally got down, she felt good to be back on solid ground, on something that wouldn't be going out from under her. And that's, that's how our God is. He's a solid rock. And he says, my life was in God's hands. God wanted him to understand that, you know what? We all die on time, David. Your enemies aren't going to catch up to you and and kill you in the middle of the night unless it's my will for you because I'm a sovereign God. One of the most comforting truths, I believe, that we need to remember in times of trial is that we are under the control of the sovereign, personal God. It's a God who cares for us, a God who created us. The God who holds our times in his hands is a sovereign God. He uses the same word that Daniel uses in chapter 2, verse 21. It's a Hebrew word for times. In that text, he says, It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. Our God, beloved, is not sitting on the edge of heaven, biting his nails, looking at everything that's going wrong in the world, going, oh no, I don't know what they're doing down there. No, he's not that kind of a God. As David wrote about God's attitude toward rebellious world rulers, he says in Psalm 2-4, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Even politically, you look at the political landscape of America. It's going down the tubes, big time in relationship to what the Bible teaches, in relationship to morality, in relationship to the the life of the unborn. All those things. It just seems like everything's backwards. But you know what? God is still in control. God sees exactly what's going on. God has a sovereign plan for all of history. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says that he's working all things after the counsel of his will. So that even... The wrath of man will praise him, Psalm 76.10 says. 
So when tragedy strikes, you or your family, don't panic, don't get stressed out and think, oh no, what's happening? Things are out of control. No, God's not asleep. He's not on vacation. His sovereignty is a great comfort in time of trial. Secondly, the God who holds our time in his hands is a personal God. Notice he says there in verse 14, you are my God. I never thought of that growing up. I was in a church church that taught almost that God was somewhat impersonal to some degree. It was was kind of like the priest's job to do the, the, the God thing. You know, you were just there to kind of come together and support the church. And you had certain places that you could, in the church, you know, you weren't, unless you're an altar boy or a priest or something, you couldn't just walk up on the altar. It's funny, I bring people in here once in a while and they're looking at something or they have a question or whatever and we'll walk in here and we'll come down near the, the front of the, the, the auditorium here. And uh, I had one guy in here that was interested in, in well, what, drum, what drums does he have up there? So well, come on up. Oh, can't go up there. Why not? Isn't that holy up there? No. <laughs> it's just a platform. It's carpet, just like down there. One guy even said, see, look, look, I'll do it. You know, he, come on up here and check these out. And he was kind of like, oh, I don't know. We serve a personal God. We serve a God who desires to have a relationship with us. He's not some distant God that doesn't want to have anything to do with us. A lot of times people view God's sovereignty and they they, they view it this way, that he's kind of some God that's cold and he's distant. And they have this fatalistic, deterministic kind of view of life. It's like the guy who believed in predestination. Went home one night, got up in the middle of the night and fell down the stairs. He got up and dusted himself off. Man, I'm glad I got that over with. It's like, you know, that's, that's a fatalistic view of life. I mean, turn the light on. You wouldn't fall down the stairs. I mean, sometimes we blame things on, on God's sovereignty and, 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 and all that, and sometimes it has nothing to do with it. But notice what he says in verse 7. You have seen my afflictions. Look at this. You have known my troubles, the troubles of my soul. See, God is not distant. He's not severe. He's not off in some corner of the universe saying, you know what, I ordained it, now you just endure it and shut up. That's not the God we serve. God is sovereign, but he's also personal. He's also caring. If you've trusted in Christ, you can call him my God because he knows you and you know him. That's very important. Even during times of trial, you can know that God cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us that we should put all of our burdens upon God because He cares for us. You may be thinking at this point, well then, if if God is sovereign and my times are in His hands, then I guess there's nothing for me to do. Whatever will be, will be. You know that song? Not so. Because there's a, a third element here that I want you to look at. See, my times points to the reality and the instability of stress. God's hands points to the reality and the stability of a sovereign, personal God who desires to have a relationship with us. 
But then in that verse in, in, in Proverbs 31, he says, but as for me, I trust in you. That brings us to the third point. What's your response? See, you can sit here this morning and say, okay, that's great. Uh, God is in control and God is sovereign and God loves me. I get all that. But what's your response to that message? See, that's key. The reality of personal trust. Personal trust in a sovereign, personal God. And what that does is it offers us stability in the midst of utter instability. Trust is that vital link that connects God's sovereign love with my distress. <laughs> when I trust God in the midst of a stressful situation, He doesn't always remove the source of stress immediately. He just doesn't. But it still gives me stability in the midst of the crisis, knowing that, hey, he's sovereign, he's personal, he loves me, he cares for me, he knows what's going on. And I think that's where David was when he wrote this psalm. He was still in the crisis. He hadn't been delivered yet. But he was experiencing God's stability in the midst of the crisis because he was trusting God. And there's a sense, of course, in which your times are in God's hands, whether you trust him or not. But that's not the sense in which David's times were in God's hands. David's times were in God's hands because David deliberately determined to put them there. He trusted God. It wasn't an automatic response. The word I there in verse 14 is very strong. It's emphatic. David's saying, you know what, no matter what my enemies may do to me, no matter what my enemies are saying about me, no matter what my former friends, where they're at, they all abandon me, I am going to trust the Lord, no matter what. See, that's the kind of stubborn faith that we're going to need as these times that we know them begin to kind of crank to an end here on planet Earth. It was a personal, conscious, deliberate choice And you know what? Trust always is. It's always that way. God doesn't make you trust him. Look at verse 2 and 3. Be to me a rock of strength. Then he says, for you are my rock. It almost sounds like double talk. He says, to me, be to me, That's the key. It's a personal trust. What you are in your very nature, O God, a a rock, a stronghold, be that to me in my current crisis. That's the kind of cry out that God wants from your heart. David is, is taking the revealed character of God as he knows it best, and he's bringing it down into his own experience, his own personal, conscious, deliberate experience that he's going through and it's a personal trust some of you may be sitting here this morning and say you know (laughs) look i've tried that but things just keep on getting worse well you know what welcome welcome to planet earth Welcome to the fallen, self-reliant humanity that we live in that's sin-stained and things are going to get worse That's just the nature of the beast. That's the way it is. When you read this psalm all the way through, you notice 
that in verses 6 and 8, David almost reaches a point of calm trust. Look at what he says in verse 6 and 8. I hate those who, who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemies and you have set my feet in a broad path. It's kind of like, wow, he got through it okay. And then look at verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. He goes right back down. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent in sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, the object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who have seen me in the street flee from me. He goes on and on. He goes from high point to low point. And then he goes back to high point again in verse 14. But I trust in you. And he goes on in that way. You know what? The, the way that psalm is written is the way our lives are. Right? I mean, we never just come to Christ, have our sins forgiven, and then we just live on this plateau the rest of our lives, untouched by the rest of the world, untouched by any stress, untouched by any sin, untouched by any, any rebellion or anything that would bring us harm. No, we've got to live here. I mean, it would be kind of a neat plan if you got saved and you just got a rocket pack and you're out of here. You're in heaven. The moment you put your faith and trust, you're gone. And you're in the presence of the Lord. That would be kind of a neat thing. But that's not the way God laid it out. Because he wanted us to be a picture of his grace, of his forgiveness, of his love to a lost and dying world. And that could never happen if we weren't here living in the midst of people who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. Who sometimes may rub us the wrong way. Who sometimes we disagree with who sometimes have an agenda that doesn't line up with the Word of God. God doesn't say, oh, no, no, just go live on a mountain somewhere and become a monk. That's not what he says. He says, no, you're the what? You're the light of the world. You're be the salt of the earth. You, you can't just, you know, take all that and, and hide it away. We have to figure out ways to become elements of, of healing, elements of forgiveness, a path of God's message to a lost and dying world. That's what we're to be. We don't run and hide from the darkness. We invade the darkness. That's what we're called to do. And so we should be focusing on God and on, on Him and, and put our, our trust in Him deliberately. And we do it over and over and over again. This isn't a one-time deal. I can't count the times that fall onto my knees and, and utter, you know, uh, shame before the Lord, realizing, wow, I really blew it here. I need to repent. I need to come back and, and, and straighten some things out. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. And then you move on. Don't allow the enemy to come in and, and keep you at that point. He wants us to move on. The point is basically that trust is not passive resignation to fate. That's not what trust is. Trust is active. Trust is personally laying hold of the character of God as revealed in his word and applying it to your particular crisis. Because when you know the God that David knew, and you know him as your personal God, and you, you begin to experience his stability in the midst of unstable circumstances, I guarantee you, it will be a blessing in your life. 
even though the trials may not go away. You'll be able to handle whatever stress comes your way because you've placed your times in the hand of his sovereign, personal care for you. When you read through the Old Testament, you notice different people echo this same kind of theme. It was Jonah who echoed a phrase from this psalm when he cried out to the Lord from the belly of a great fish. It was Jeremiah whose message was rejected as a prophet and whose life was often threatened. He also borrowed another phrase from this psalm as his motto. As an old man, even David himself in Psalm 31 took refuge in God by praying the words of Psalm 31, verses 1 to 3. But even our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, meditated on this psalm so often that it was his final words from the cross that were a quote from 31.5. Father, into your, spirits I com- into your hands I commit my spirit. See, he endured that, that supreme stress of bearing our sins by entrusting himself to his Father, his sovereign, personal Father. And that's what we have to do. Some of you parents have had the opportunity to teach your kids how to swim. And it's, it's kind of a, a fun thing to do. But when you take your kids in the, in the shallow end, right? I mean, they can't touch the bottom and you're holding them and they're fine. And you're holding them up. And you start to move toward the deep end where the diving board is. Where they, sometimes they start to freak out. Right? No, 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 no. Even though you still have them. I mean, they couldn't touch the, the, the ground in the, the, the shallow end or the deep end. But somehow they think by moving toward the, 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 the deep end, somehow they're, they're going to be more insecure. Even though you're, you're totally holding on to them. Sometimes this coming year, you're going to feel like you're moving toward the deep end. Sometimes you may feel like, wow, you're going, getting in over your head. And the stress may seem overwhelming. And you feel like things are out of control. Well, guess what? We're never in control. <laughs> We're never in control. God's in control. And I think it's just pride when we think we are. God wants us to see that we're always in over our heads. And the only way that we can get out of that is by putting our faith, our trust in Him. We're, we're dependent on Him for our very next breath. We're dependent on Him for the next bite of food. We're dependent on Him for the clothes we put on our back. Our response to stress, whether it comes from the big crisis or from the daily routine, should be consciously, deliberately, to put our trust in the sovereign personal God who is never, ever in over his head. We need to put our times in his hands. Read the word this next year. Take some time and read the word. Spend some time in prayer. Make it a discipline that will help you grow in your relationship with God. So when the stressful time comes, you're ready for it. Sing praises to him in your devotion time. It doesn't matter whether you can sing or not. 
can't carry a tune in a bucket doesn't matter to the Lord. It says make a joyful noise, just make a joyful noise. Fellowship with the brethren, very important. Do the things that basically God tells us to do. And then you'll be equipped. Do good works. You know, the role of, of good works is to affirm our faith in Christ. It's not to save us. None of us are saved by good works. Our good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have good works in our lives as Christians. We're created in Christ for good works. Ask yourself, this, this next year, how are you going to discipline yourself? Put your hands in his time so you're ready when the crisis comes. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would help us as 2014 rolls around. Lord, we don't know what this next year will hold. None of us do. Um, We could be blessed tremendously. We could also endure severe hardship. We could lose those that we love most. We could lose our health. We could lose our finances, our security. But Lord, we know that ultimately our security is in you. Father, I pray for each person here, each family represented here this morning, that Lord, if you walk away with anything here today, I pray that they would walk away with the simple fact that God loves them. He loves them so much that he sent his own son to die for their sin on on the cross. And that he desires that relationship with them. That relationship that can grow and deepen as any other relationship does. Father, if there's any here this morning who've yet to put their faith or trust in you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would draw their hearts close to you. That you would give them wisdom to understand the words they're hearing even now. That you would help them even in their unbelief. That you would give them the faith that they need. That you would open their eyes to the truth. Help them to realize that simple prayer, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. Lord, I need to be saved. I need to have my sins forgiven. I need to understand you in a fuller way. And for us Christians, Lord, I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that you've left us here with a purpose and a plan. Father, that we wouldn't just get in our little holy huddle and watch the world go to hell. Father, but we would become innovators of how to invade the darkness with your word, with your truth. I pray that 2014 we may see many come to know you as Lord and Savior. Father, we just entrust that you will do that work in and through us as we're obedient to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.